Isaiah chapter 13 is where we're headed. If you don't have a Bible, there's one on the seats in front of you, below the seat. If you're borrowing a Bible, I can make it easy for you. It's on page 576. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. And Isaiah has been this overall message as we're entering into, here, let me back up. Let me say this from the beginning like it makes sense. All right, good thing I don't have to speak for a living or anything, right? All right, let's try this again. Isaiah, in its overall message, pronounces judgment on God's people for not being obedient, for not following him. It pronounces judgment on the people that are persecuting them and ultimately it promises hope, that hope will come through judgment. And so all that takes place, there's this recurring message that there are things to come that are going to be hard and challenging, some that will wipe out entire nations. All these things will take place, but the point of all of them is not judgment for judgment's sake, if you will. It's not penalty just to penalize. It's, it's judgment for the sake of righteousness, but it's also judgment that hope will come through it. So then there's, this been, there's been this recurring gospel theme, and I love the image earlier in Isaiah as it talks about a tree that is cut down and even the stump is burned, but from that burned stump, a, a holy seed will grow. And so all the way back from the beginning of Isaiah as it's pronouncing us, it's pushing us forward to Jesus. It tells us about things to come immediately. It tells us to things about things that will come because of Christ. So in that, I want to I just think through that lens today. If you would, would you stand up with me as we read a short passage out of what we're looking at today? It's in Isaiah 13. If you want to follow along, I'm just going to read verses 11, 12, and 13. We, we stand in just a way of recognition that it's God's word that has authority over us and that it's God's word that we're here so Isaiah 11, or 13, starting in verse 11, says, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Let's pray. Jesus, as we gather this morning, really, we, we are eager to hear from you. Jesus, my words do nothing. It's your words that bring us life. And Jesus, we need life. We need you. As we talk about judgment and destruction today, as heavy and as hard as that can be, Lord, we also see that there's a promise of hope to come. And so let us see, Lord, uh, as, you, as you see judgment. Let us see hardship as you see hardship. Let us see the contrast between who we are and what the world is. Amen. Help us to find ourselves in that in this story. Jesus, as Isaiah prophesied almost 3,000 years ago, his ultimate story comes, to, comes true in you. Yes, there are moments in time where things took place that he talks about, but ultimately they all point to you. So if that's the truth and if that's this message, Jesus, let us see you in this passage. Jesus, we love you. It's because of you that we're here, so we pray these things in your name. Amen. You guys can be seated. 
If you're a note taker, our app has a note section, so anything I put up on the screen will be in the note section. Everything else will be in Isaiah 13. So if we leave that at all, we'll put it up on the screen for you. It's in our app, and so you can get that for free. That way you don't have to frantically scribble or take pictures or anything else. We try to make it easy. So here's a starting point for us. Jesus has overcome. When everything in life, economic, political, spiritual, mental, and emotional, all seem like they are corrupt and unable to be fixed, we are comforted by knowing that Jesus has overcome the world. Now, let me give us a little context. One commentary author, he, he wrote this. He says, there are three, really three things that as a Christian we, we are challenged by or struggle with. One, the Bible calls the flesh. There's inherent sin inside of us, right? That there are those parts of us that are broken, that are fallen because of sin, even in our faith, even where Jesus has made us new, even where the Holy Spirit lives in us, there's still brokenness inside of us. And so that's the flesh, sin that lives in the flesh. Paul, best, in Romans 7 says this, why do I not do the things I want to do, and why do I do the things I don't want to do? Right, and if Paul says that, who Paul lived a pretty stellar life, right, then we can all resonate there. And he says this, it's not me, it's sin that lives in me. It's the flesh. It's that I am constantly drawn to doing the wrong things. The second thing the Bible tells us about is about Satan, about the devil, about the enemy in general, right? And that's really, that's kind of a, a word that, that covers all of the spiritual world that is against God, demons, whatever that might be, right? Paul also in Ephesus reminds us that we're not in a battle of flesh and blood, that there is a spiritual component, right? There is something that we can't always see that is opposing God and therefore opposing us if we're in Christ, and the third thing we are told that, that really pushes against the Christian is the world. And that doesn't mean that everything in the world is bad. God created the world. But everything in the world is fallen and cursed from sin. And so all of the world, whether that be political power or wealth, whether that be the economic system or justice or injustice, wherever you want to go, the world is corrupted, right? We live in America, probably the greatest place to live right now, at all, period, but we're still flawed and broken, right? Our justice system, probably better than any other system in the world, still broken, right? Our medical system, all the topic right now, still better than almost anywhere else in the world, still broken. The world's just broken. It's that third piece, the world. All that is this power, this justice, this humanity, all that is that, is the very thing we're looking at today. But as Jesus will say, but take heart, because Jesus has overcome the world. Amen. Okay, Isaiah 13, verse 1, it says, This oracle, that's another word for prophecy or a word, concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. So here it is. If you're new to this, if you're, if you're just joining us, if you haven't been here with us for the first 12 chapters, here's where we are. A man named Isaiah, just, just short of 3,000 years ago, is writing a book. He's a prophet. That means that he speaks God's words with God's authority, typically to God's people, sometimes to those outside of that, but for the most part, to God's people, right? And I would say that's a lot like church today. The message today is for God's people. We all want to take this and we want to point outside ourselves and go, oh, I wish so-and-so could hear this. Amen. Oh, you've never done that. Okay. <clears throat> right? Wish my spouse were here. Wish my kids were listening, right? Maybe it's for you. Amen. Okay. 
minus the maybe. All right. So here's Isaiah, and he's got this word from God. He's saying with God's authority, God's word, God's authority to God's people in this situation. And he's teaching them, he's proclaiming to them something roughly 3,000 years ago that is still relevant today. And in this case, he has been proclaiming to them that they have been disobedient for generation after generation after generation. And he has been calling them back to obedience. And up to this point, they've refused, and they will continue to refuse to repent and return and to be obedient. They become hard-hearted, right? Or stiff-necked is another word the Bible uses. This kind of when God talks, they just kind of turn. That's where they are right now. And because of that, he said, listen, the surrounding nations are going to conquer you. And I don't want to get too far ahead because that's actually a part of what we're going to talk about today. But do you remember who is the most powerful empire during this season of Isaiah's life? Who? Not yet. Assyria. Is that you, Rob? Dude, good job, man. One guy listening the whole time right there. That's why he sits in the second row. Right? He's in the spit zone still, but he remembers stuff, right? That's good. Assyria, right? So there's Assyria, there's another country, Syria, there's Babylon, there's all these other nations, Judah and Israel, the people of God have split in half, kind of. And Assyria is the most prominent nation in the world. And God has said, because you've been rebellious, I'm going to allow Assyria to come in and conquer you. Now here's what's going to happen. Isaiah is going to look past that time, past the moment where Assyria conquers Judah. He's going to look past that, to another time where Babylon conquers Assyria, and then what comes next. So he's looking almost 200 years in his future. So back up 2,800 years to Isaiah, and he's talking about something that's going to happen 200 years later after he says this. Verse 2. On a bare hill, raise a signal, cry to them, wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. So here's what he's saying, imagine a high hill, you've got a, you've got a picture, probably for us, maybe it's best to look back at movies where there's actually foot soldiers, right? War has changed today. We do a lot of stuff uh, via drones, airplanes, tanks, other things. I want you to back up before we had any of that, and I want you to imagine some of those movies you've seen, maybe through the Crusades or, or any of the times, uh, in fact, some of this stuff is, is a prelude to the movie 300 that will take place just short of this history. And it's foot soldiers coming in, really with the longest thing they have is like bows or sometimes maybe a catapult that'll sling something in the air. This is a foot army. This is predominantly a people group that will begin to march forward and then engage in battle, really kind of hand to hand. And so imagine this, most of the times they would have commanders up on a hill who would signal them in the movie, like Braveheart, you see flags and you hear trumpets and different things. And that's, they would have somebody from a prominent viewpoint call them into battle. And that's what this is, right? On a bare hill, raise a signal, cry aloud to them, wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. Like, okay, go. This is the beginning, this cry for war, if you will, as God is beginning to say what's going to happen. Verse 3, I myself, God speaking, have commanded my consecrated ones and have surrounded my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exulting ones. Now, this can be a little bit confusing. God is going to use a human army, not God's people, 
not Jewish people, not people that worship God. He's going to use a human army that opposes his people who is going to do what he calls them to do. But he calls them consecrated ones. He says, I myself have commanded my consecrated ones. Consecrated actually means set apart. Like the word holy, we think of the word holy as meaning like perfect. Something that is holy has been set apart for God. If you use one bowl for worship and you use another bowl for cereal, you would call one set apart, holy, consecrated, if you will. And that's what God is saying. Listen, my consecrated ones, the ones I have set apart for this job. Okay, so when, when God says that, he is calling, he is going to use people, not even just his people, he's going to use people for his purpose. So what we have is a sovereign God. God's sovereignty extends beyond his power over the present world. God is sovereign over eternity and proves it by prophesying about Babylon's destruction nearly 200 years before it occurs. Even more so, God is sovereign not just over his people or over us, but God is sovereign over anyone who has ever drawn breath. And God is going to use the metal Persian empires, the Medes and the Persians, to do his work against Babylon. Verse 4, the sound of a tumult is on the mountains as a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. So again, I want you to imagine this foot army. I want you to imagine thousands of soldiers, sometimes tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of soldiers and marching. And you don't even have to be like on a platform that makes some noise. All you got to do is be on land and have that many people marching towards you, and literally the ground will begin to shake. And you can hear this from a distance off. And a lot of times, like we will see in the movies, they will have this war cry, and they will just shout out loud things. And the idea was, is to be this causing of fear, this, this army, this people, just to instill fear in the enemy by sounding so ferocious from a distance that the people waiting on you have to wait in fear and just kind of anticipate you coming. And with foot soldiers, again, this is before paved roads and concrete and asphalt. Just imagine these armies just rushing into battle, and all you see is this dirt cloud forming behind them. You're not really sure how many people are there, but it sounds loud. It sounds menacing. And as they draw nearer and nearer, you can hear the volume ramping up of all these foot, sol foot soldiers and, and horse-bound soldiers, and you can hear this coming towards you. And God is prophesying that this will happen, and he is giving this image of what is to come. Verse 5, they come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. So coming from a distant land, now God will actually identify who it is in just a minute, but as they're coming from a distant land, here comes this invading army, here comes this sound, here comes this sight and God is like the general up on the mountain causing this to take place. Verse 6, it says, Wail, for the day is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, his hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. That's the, the fear instilled in the people that, that anticipate this army coming towards them. They will be dismayed, verse 8. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. 
So there is this, this language to be used here. We just read it in verse 6. Wait, for the day of the Lord is near. We'll say it again in verse 9 in just a minute. But there's this phrase, the day of the Lord. And so the day of the Lord for Babylon, right, who God is speaking to at this point. Now, again, I want you to remember, Assyria is the empire that's in charge right now. Babylonia is a very small uh, country. Until it starts to conquer and it becomes a massive empire. Like if, if, you're thinking, if you think in biblical terms, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all that takes place under Babylonian authority. So they're, in, they're a country who will rise up, conquer others, and become an empire. But right now, they're not that. Right now, Assyria is that. But God is looking 200 years in the future and saying, here's what I'm going to do. And when this happens, it's going to happen in this way. He says, in the day of the Lord, so the day that God has decreed for Babylonia, for Babylon to be destroyed, Babylonia, the capital, Babylon, to be destroyed, representing that whole nation, it will go like this. And so the day of the Lord is the destruction of Babylon. But as most prophecies that take place in the Bible, when God says something that is future telling, now I, let me back out of that and I'll give you that in a minute. Most prophecy is for present tense. Most of the times when God speaks through people, it's for right there or really soon after. Like this is something right now. When God is calling Judah and Israel to repent and to return to him, it's a right now. Repent or this is going to happen. It's a call to them in the current present tense. What we get in this one is a, a future telling prophecy. Now in most churches or most Christians tend to think that prophecy is predominantly future-telling, but it's not. But on the occasions where it is, where it's looking down in the timeline of history, it's looking to the future, almost always there's two meanings. One is a meaning in that present time that will take place, or in the time being talked about. Babylon will be destroyed. That will happen in just under 200 years. This will take place. But the in the day of the Lord peace is also something much greater that is fully realized in Christ as Christ destroys the wickedness of the world. And so here's what we got. If you remember back in Isaiah 7, if you were here for that message, that is that famous passage you often hear it at Christmas, right? Behold, a virgin will conceive a son and his, his name shall be Emmanuel, right? That sound familiar? When that takes place in Isaiah 7, it has the same thing. There's an immediate fulfillment of that, and then there's the future fulfillment that we see in Christ. Immediately, Isaiah takes a wife, and a, a, a young woman, who he ends up having a child with, who is the immediate fulfillment of that prophecy, who will do what God is talking about in that. But the future part that's revealed in Christ is when Jesus enters into human history, when Jesus is born in the flesh. Make sense? Prophecy that is future-telling almost always, I can't think of an example where it doesn't, but almost always has something that is kind of an archetype, something that will happen up front, something that will happen soon within, within the time frame of that prophecy, and then something greater that is fully realized in Christ. Here we have the destruction of Babylon, really. In about 180, almost 200 years, the destruction of Babylon will take place. But then Babylon, throughout all of the Bible, will become an image of a corrupt world. 
Fast forward all the way through the New Testament, and you see it in Peter, you see it in John's writing, you see it all the way in the book of Revelation several times when it talks about Babylon. Babylon's already been destroyed. But it's talking about the corrupt world, whether it be corruption of power, corruption of justice, corruption of authority, whatever it might be. Babylon becomes symbolic of a corrupt world. So again, there will be a fulfillment when actually Babylon is destroyed, and then there will be the ultimate fulfillment that's realized in Christ. So prophecy, I'll give it to you this way. Prophecy will often have two meanings, a fulfillment in the near time, near the time spoken, and a larger meaning ultimately realized in Christ. Here, the destruction of Babylon is the first meaning, and the destruction of all that is evil in the world is the larger meaning fulfilled in Christ at his final return. So when we look at prophecy, God's not just doing parlor tricks. God's not just doing magic tricks. Hey, look, and I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in 200 years. He's also teaching his people what must happen ultimately in Christ. That Jesus, who came in the flesh, who lived the sinless life that you and I have been called to live, but we have failed, who died a substitutionary and vicarious death, the penalty paid on our behalf, who suffered and died and was laid in a grave, who rose from the grave three days later just to ascend back to heaven to take his rightful place on the throne, who has poured out his spirit on us and promised he will return again. That Jesus will ultimately destroy all that is corrupt in this world. So when we see this lens of judgment... There's really lots of lenses we can look through. Babylon destroys Assyria. Assyria destroys the people of God's nation and takes them captive. When we get to Babylon being in charge and Nebuchadnezzar and some of those leaders that sound familiar in the Bible, like the book of Daniel, the Jews are enslaved to the people of Babylon, right? And so for this, we've already seen judgment on God's people for their disobedience. And then... For destroying God's people, God judges them too, right? Like, yeah, I get it, and they had it coming. Still mine, right? It's like, I can call my friend something, but you can't call my friend something. You with me? Because he's big. No, I'm just kidding. So anyhow, like, right? Like, like there's, a, there's a sense of, like, these are still mine, as crazy and wayward as they are. It's like, being a parent, right? Crazy and wayward as they are, they're still mine. I didn't say it. You didn't hear that on my recording, but yes, right? And that's what God's doing. Yes, I'm going to use them as an instrument of judgment against your works, your deeds, your evil. But I will ultimately destroy them and redeem you. Verse 9, behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and with fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and the constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Some have said, I don't really have an opinion here, which is odd. I always have an opinion. Some have said this is actually God saying, listen, I'm just going to darken everything, like the removal of my presence is the darkening of everything. Others have said that this invading army is going to be so large and so fearsome as they fire 
like arrows that are, you know, flaming arrows, and they, as they march in, this cloud cover, and then they're burning everything down, that this smoke will just cover the land. It's just utter destruction, and whether it's in human terms or in spiritual terms, it really has the same effect, right? That it is so destructive that you can't see, that it is so much that nothing is left. You can't even see the sky above you. I remember that there was on the 91 freeway, there was that, that uh, gasoline rig, that diesel rig that, that burned down on the ground on the 91 just a few years ago. I had to drive through that. I was on my Harley at the time. That was odd, right? And you just, for a minute, and this was, they'd already cleared things, they'd opened it back up, but for a minute, you just kind of went into a dark cloud. Like it stayed that way. There was ashes for just, there was ash for days. I just remember going through this and thinking of the destruction that had taken place on that freeway and they had blocked off some of it and they'd reopened some lanes. But just imagine those seasons where we've seen such destruction that it changes. It changes everything when you're right there. Second Peter says this, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So we have this dual message, right? We have this message of God's heart is patient, longing for you to return to him. God's heart leads with love, leads with mercy, leads with a desire for you. But it won't be there forever. Like there is a day that is set in place by God that is the day of the Lord. That day came for Babylon, and that day will come for the entirety of the world. That God will judge wickedness, that God will judge sin. But I love this longing heart. He's not slow as we think of slow. He is patiently waiting for every one of his children to return. Verse 11, I will punish the world, God says, for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompless pride of the, root, of the ruthless. Right? Destruction alone is not hope. But knowing that Jesus has overcome the world is hope. Destruction is that stark awareness of what will take place. But the hope is found that Jesus has overcome that. Verse 12, I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind the gold of Ophir. Like I will eliminate so much of humanity, you'll find rare gold faster than you'll find another human being. Right, that is destruction. Verse 13, therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord, the Lord of hosts, in the day of his fierce anger. So the destruction, ultimately, what God is speaking about in this prophecy to Babylon is ultimately judging the wickedness of the world. He says the earth will be shaken out of its place by the wrath of the Lord. That at the day of the Lord fully, not just for Babylon, but the day of the Lord where Christ returns. At that day, wickedness will be wiped from the earth. I said this, we were talking about something earlier in Isaiah. And I said, I, have a, I think we were talking about peace at the time, that Christ brings peace. 
And I said, I don't even think, I don't even believe that we really truly know how that will feel. Same thing applies here. I really truly don't know how, I don't believe that we have an understanding of what the world would be like without wickedness. Like that we're so, so entrenched in the wickedness and the corruption of the world. Right, if we're all just honest, we know that even though we live in the best nation on the planet, I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. We just know that stuff's just kind of rigged, right? That politics are just ugly and corrupt, and that's both sides, all sides, right? That the economic system, man, it's, it's easy to be rich and stay rich. It's not easy to be broke and be anything but broke, right? Like we know that this, it's, even though it's imperfect, this place is just broken, right? In the best case scenario, it's still just broken. And I told the story when I had my first back surgery in 02. The first words I spoke when I saw my wife were, I'm out of pain. I'd been in pain for so long that I knew about the pain, but I forgot how much the pain was. And to come out of that, there was this, new, this realization of what, we'll call it normal, what normal should be. When God destroys all of wickedness, I think we'll go, oh, wow, that's what it looks like to be without corruption and sin. Like, this is a whole new thing. I didn't know. I think it's to that level that we will be so surprised. And I think we can wrap our head around some things now. God gives us a foretaste now, but we have no idea what a world without corruption looks like and never have. And like a hunted gazelle, verse 14, or like sheep with none to gather them, each will turn to his own people and each will flee to his own land. Whoever is found will be thrust through and whoever is caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. The houses will be plundered and their wives will be ravished. So he is speaking back and forth about what's going to take place when Babylon is conquered and really ultimately when the world is judged. And he is laying out an image. Isaiah, on behalf of God, is laying out this image of utter destruction. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them, who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. So the Medes, or the Medo Persian Empire, so the Medes and the Persians will rise up. So Assyria is in power now. You will go through that, you'll go through Babylon, you will go through the Medo Persian reign. And it's at that time when the Middle Persians take over that they will wipe out Babylon. I say all that, but most of you don't care. Some of you may enjoy that kind of history. Most of you are like just trying to give it, get the point of like what God's trying to say to me, and that's good too. But understand this, 200 years in advance, God is saying exactly who's going to be destroyed and exactly who's going to destroy them. And it happens, Right? See, this is one of the books of the Bible that's been highly criticized throughout history by secular folks and by Christians because as people got so smart that they got smarter than the Bible, they decided, well, there's no way. There must have been multiple authors to Isaiah. There must have been some that wrote a couple hundred years later because it's so clear on what happened. There must have been some that wrote almost 800 years later on the other side of the crucifixion because Isaiah 52 and 53 so clearly depict the crucifixion of Jesus that there's no way it could have been written back here. That was why the Qumran tablets and the Dead Sea Scrolls were so powerful because those collapsed hundreds of years before Jesus was born and an entire copy of Isaiah exists in it, showing that God said this long before it ever took place. 
just reminding us and giving us that authority that God is sovereign over all of history, backwards, forwards, present day. Verse 18, their bulls will slaughter the young men and they will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children in Babylon. The glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. You can look back at the story in Genesis and see Sodom and Gomorrah wiped out as God just levels out a city, too, in this case. As God levels out a people group for wickedness. As he does that, he reminds them, as it was here, it's going to be here for Babylon. Which really then lets us know, as it was here, that this entire corrupt planet needs to be renewed. That Jesus must come and rid it of wickedness. And unless you do everything, destroy everything living, you still have that. These are graphic passages about not letting mothers or pregnant women live. Like as they conquer Babylon, they will slaughter everyone. We just have to realize that wickedness is that pervasive. That it runs that deep. That judgment has to be that grand. And it will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. And no Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. Verse 21. But wild animals will lie down there, and their houses will be full of howling creatures. Their ostriches will will dwell. And there wild goats will dance. Hyenas will cry in its towers and jackals in the pleasant palaces. Its time is close at hand, and its days will not be prolonged. So Babylon will be destroyed. So Babylon will be utterly wiped out. So why should a passage like this bring anyone a sense of encouragement? I mean, if we're really honest and we step back, the stuff about Babylon doesn't really affect us a whole lot. Like it already took place, right? More than 2,500 years ago, Babylon was wiped out. Okay. It's just kind of a, a piece of history. And we hear it. It's pretty innocuous. It doesn't affect us so much unless we really press in and go, wow, God said that ahead of time, then it just makes God a little bit bigger. But when we consider God's judgment on wickedness, there's a piece of us that just don't understand always. It's like, okay, this seems really, really severe. You know, you back out of that and you're looking at, well, corruption's pretty severe, right? The, The way we broke this place, it's pretty bad. But in a message on judgment, it's hard sometimes to find that ray of hope that shines through. So I want to go back to the words of Jesus in John 16. He says, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So here's what he's saying. In this world, this corrupt place, in the world that is corrupted by people and power and politics and finance and everything else, in this corrupt place, you will have tribulation. Not maybe, you're going to suffer through some things. Even if you're not an oppressed people group, you're not enslaved by Babylon, if it doesn't really, like you're going to suffer in this world, right? You're going to hurt. You're going to have struggled relationships. You're going to lose loved ones. You're going to have disease. You're going to die eventually. It may be a horrible death. It may be an immediate death. Who knows what it's going to be, but you will suffer in this world. In this world, you will have suffering, tribulation. But take heart. He says, I say these things that you would have peace. Take heart. I've overcome the world. In In Jesus' sinless life, remember I said there's 
There's the sin of the flesh, right? There's the enemy or Satan or the devil, whatever you want to call that. And then there's the world. Those are the three things that fight back against us as Christians, right? In Jesus' sinless life, he has had victory over the sin of the flesh. As Satan thought he had won, as Jesus is dead and laid in a grave, the resurrection takes place, and Jesus has victory over Satan, giving us new life, right? And at the final return of Christ, when Jesus returns, the next time we see Jesus, we'll be at the destruction of a corrupt world. You see, the gospel speaks to all of this, that Jesus came and lived and died and rose again to reconcile us to God and God to us. And then in that, there is not only a promise of the Holy Spirit now, but there is a promise of an end to all corruption and wickedness when Jesus returns. And there is a destruction of judgment, I mean a judgment on wickedness. So I wanted to give us some takeaways. If you're in a community group, make sure you check back in these in your community groups this week. Let me just walk through them. A sovereign God. God's sovereignty over human history is a comfort to us. Knowing that God not only knows the future, but controls it. We are comforted in any season of life, no matter what is taking place, because we're assured of God's authority over it. No matter where you are in life, no matter how hard life might be, even how good life might be, be assured God is sovereign over it. If life is great today, man, we bless you. Good. It won't be forever. We all, we all struggle. Remembering that God is sovereign over all of it keeps us focused on Christ. Next slide. God first judges Israel and Judah for abandoning true worship, but ultimately restores them through judgment on them. God judges the wickedness of the world as well, but always to the end of restoring his people. Some days, we are just obstinate. We are just plugging our ears when God's talking, we're just turning our head and not looking, not listening, hardening our heart. And sometimes God just says, okay, listen, here's what's going to take to get you back here. And God is willing to do that. It's discipline. Yeah. It's discipline because he loves you, not judgment. Yeah. Right? He will judge sin, but it is discipline. And he takes that discipline out on his people that have wandered away, an entire nation, a theocracy built on worship. As they wander away, he absolutely judges them, but he does it for discipline, not just ultimately for judgment and condemnation. But then the wickedness and corruptness of this world does get judged. He does all of this to reconcile us to himself. He does this to reconcile those whom he loves back to himself. Babylon. Babylon is more than an empire in history. It's an image of all that is corrupt in the world. It represents false worship, false power, and false security in this world. Let me push pause. If you trust in anything to get through this life other than God, that's Babylon. Your job, your home, your family, your intellect, your giftedness, those are things of this world. Use wrongly if you depend on them. And God says, and God re repeats this over and over in Scripture, that Babylon is that image False security in this world. We, warn, we are warned not to trust in this temporary life because it will be destroyed. If you place all your hope here, you miss everything God's talking about. We get to enjoy this, but we enjoy this in him. We enjoy this in Christ, but our hope isn't here. Our hope is forever. Our hope is in Christ eternally. 
So Jesus has overcome. If you're struggling in this world for whatever reason or in whatever way, the true hope and meaning of all that takes place in Babylon is that Jesus has ultimately overcome the world. Place your hope in the eternal one. Place your hope in Christ, not in something that is finite or temporal. I'm going to close with this passage out of Romans. It says this, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty or proud, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. They will know we are followers of Jesus by our love for one another. God gets the vengeance. Live peaceably. Live in harmony with one another. Love one another as you would be loved is the message of the follower of Jesus. However, God will judge wickedness. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. You have done everything for us. You have restored us to our Father. You have given us faith. You've given us life. You've given us all that we need to honor you in this life. And in that, you have given us hope that one day you will make everything right. That Jesus, one day you will come and judge all of the corruption of this world. If we're dishonest, every, every political season, we just watch as corruption rises up to the top. And I, and I say that equally on every side of the equation. We just watch as people who we're hoping will lead our country begin to slam one another and, and ultimately lie and, and just are horrible. God, our hope can't be in this life. Our hope must be in the Holy One, you. So Jesus, I pray, will you keep our eyes fixed on you as Hebrews says, the author and finisher of our faith, that we would be reminded that you are worthy of being, of being focused on, that you are the one who, who has given us life in this world. Jesus, keep our eyes on you. Let us love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.